Bibles, turn over with me to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. You're going to have to find it, dust it off a little bit. And um, I prayed about what to do this evening um, with the teachers being here tonight about should um, break away from our normal Wednesday night Bible study. And, um, but the Lord just gave me peace about just continuing from where we have been. And just a couple weeks ago, we started on Wednesday night going through uh, this book of Zechariah, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. And uh, so you ju- jumped in, but it means you're going to have to put your thinking cap on here because it's not an easy book to go through. Um, it's uh, it's, it's a, a book that is filled with visions. It's a book that is difficult in, in interpretation. And um, it's, it's a book that, as we talked about in, in a lot of fashion, even though the Jewish rabbis and um, recognized that it was in the Old Testament canon, that their actual belief about this book, that is, it, it can't be understood. So it's one of those books in the Old Testament that they recognize it's inspired, but they can't really understand it. And the key part of the Jewish people not being able to understand the book of Zechariah is because they reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And as long as they reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah, this book makes no sense to them. And so when we come to this book, we recognize that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. And there are some passages and books of Scripture that are... um, uh, cause us to to dig a little deeper because they're not a normal narrative. Um, and uh, maybe like First uh, and Second Samuel, they're not uh, more po- poetic in a fashion of uh, maybe a hymn or a praise such as the Psalms or the book of Proverbs. And so when we come to some, especially these minor prophets, uh, knowing the historical context and when they fit in the life of the nation of Israel and just having some regular historical, grammatical, hermeneutic when we come to it and let the Scripture speak for itself. And so, as we introduced it, the first six verses of this book are the introduction. In fact, the first six verses are going to lay out, really, the theme of the whole book. Because from chapters 1, verse 7, down to chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, there are eight visions that Zechariah is going to see. And he sees them all in one night, eight visions. What a night that was for him. Then chapter 7 and 8 are some questions that, that come to Zechariah, and he will answer these questions, and mainly it has to deal with the fasting of what is happening in, um, in this remnant that has come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel. And then chapters 9 to 14 are mainly prophecy, all dealing with future aspects of Israel and the nation of Israel and the future coming Messiah and the King. Uh, that is to come. And so, really, the theme of this book is going to be laid out in the instruction of interpreting the visions, the questions in chapters 7 and 8, and the prophecies in chapters 9 through 14. If you don't get the first six verses, you're going to miss the point of, of some of those other chapters. And it, it, it can be fairly confusing. 
And so let's just just read again what God is coming out from uh, Zechariah in these first six verses here. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, a Persian king, a Gentile king, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. God is angry. He's angry with great anger. That's how the verse read, reads. Two times the word angry is used here in this. He is so very angry at your fathers. Why is that? Well, you should have been here for the introduction. And the introduction was the fact that the nation of Israel, for, for one prophet after another, had rejected the word of God and gone into disobedience. Eventually ending with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, as recorded by both Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And the nation of Israel was cast out of the land because they broke the covenant of God. And they were for 70 years in captivity. Jeremiah would prophesy they would be 70 years under captivity uh, in, uh, in, uh, out of the land. The 70 years has passed. Cyrus has signed a decree. And the Jewish people, about, uh, I think I remember about 500,000 of them have come out of Persia, out of Babylon, and made the march all the way back to Jerusalem under Ezra, and Zerubbabel. That's recorded in the first few chapters of the book of Ezra. You can read that. And while they're there, their job is to restore the temple. Build it. It's been destroyed. God's glory has departed. That's the book of Ezekiel. God's glory has left God's people. And they've been in captive. Why? Because God is angry with them and he must judge sin. And God told him that he was going to judge his people if they didn't follow him. And they continued to go after the Canaanite gods. Their kings continued to follow and bring in these idols into the temple. And God said, sooner or later, his patience was over. And that's the book of Jeremiah. So, while the Jewish people have come back to the land, God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to rally the people to build the temple and don't give up. To encourage the remnant who has returned. But God, here's the message that Zechariah has come. God is displeased. Therefore say thou unto them. Zechariah you say this to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Five times in the next several verses. The name of the title. The Lord of armies is going to be mentioned. This is, a, this is going to be used. I believe I said 53 times in this book. That the Lord of hosts is going to be used. This is the name of God that means he is in control of all things. Just because Darius is on the throne. A Persian Gentile king. And the Jewish people have to count their calendar. Not by an Israel king. But by a Gentile king. God is still in control. Don't forget that. And he says here. Here's the condition. Turn you unto me says the Lord of hosts. You see, there's the condition that God has always placed upon any of His people. From Cain, when He killed Abel, God came to Cain and said, Cain, sin lies at the door. But if you will turn to me. And Cain hardened his heart and left. The message that Noah would preach to a, an entire world was a nation that it was a, was a message that if you will turn to God, He will spare you 
And only eight people got on the ark and found mercy and grace from God. All right. This has been the message over and over and over again. And the Old Testament prophets said this. If you will turn, if you will turn, if you will turn. And the book of Malachi ends. We saw this last week. The book of Malachi, the Old Testament ends with this call. There's a voice that's going to come from the wilderness. And it's going to tell you, turn to God. And when Matthew chapter 1 opens up, actually I think it's Matthew chapter 3 in verse 1. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness. The bridge between the old and new covenant. And what is the first words that come out of his mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message to God's people has always been the same. Return. Repent. And notice the promise in this verse. If you will turn, the condition here is, if you will turn, then I will turn to you. That is a message of hope. That is a message of mercy. That is a message of a God who has compassion even in judgment. That even though his judgment is going to come down to his people, if you will meet his demands, what's the demands? Repent. Then God will turn to you. And that reminds us of James chapter 4 where God told the church in the New Testament, you draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. So, same is true in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament. God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. Some people, I told you this, that I was talking to someone in our church just in a counseling session, and, and they saw that there, there's, there's a God of the Old Testament who is angry and judgmental and, and constantly judging and, and you know whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or whether it's the nations or the Amorites or even God's people and just all these prophets. This is an angry God. But then the God of the New Testament through Jesus is a God of love and grace and compassion. And they always use the story of you know uh, Jericho and Ai and Sodom and Gomorrah and they use a, a lot of other uh, examples just enough to be dangerous, enough the stories to be dangerous. And yet I turn the, uh, the, the story around and said, hold on a second. You read the story of, of, uh, of, of Jericho and Joshua coming into the land of Canaan, but you skipped over the one lady who laid the cord out of the window. Her name is Rahab, who God shows mercy and grace. And she ends up weaving her way and making her way into the book of Ruth and into the book of 1 Samuel and then finds her name in the pages of Jesus' genealogy in the New Testament. He's a God of grace. So yes, he is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment. He must judge sin. He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. However, this God of the Old Testament also offers grace and forgiveness, but not on your terms, on his terms. And when he came to the nation of Israel, he said, if you will return to me and repent, then I will return and show you grace. Verse 4, be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, turn ye now from your evil. Here's the repent. Turn from your evil ways. That's your paths. That is your heart. That is your planning. That's your preparation. You see, all of our actions come from the inside. It is out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So it's not just about changing someone's behavior. 
It's about changing their pattern and ways. It's about changing their heart. And so you, you, you see this before he addresses their practice. He addresses their heart. Repent and turn from your evil ways. And then he says here, and from your evil doings. Right? So understand that. God is not just a God who's just us all about rules and regulations. And if you'll just conform to the standard, and you'll conform to these Old Testament rules and everything like that, and you'll just make the sacrifice, you'll just keep these feast days, and you'll just do that, then, then you'll be okay. God was concerned about the heart from the first place. And so, because our heart dictates what we do with our hands. And that's what God is looking for. Not merely the sacrifices of your hands and the, and the speaking of, of your voice, but what is going on inside. And so we have here a, a, a good classic understanding of what repentance is. Repentance is a turning in your heart to God, away from your thought and your hearts that plans to do evil, and then a repentance of the doings of evil that take place with your hands, all right? That is your action and your behavior. But they did not hear, nor would they hearken unto me, says the Lord. Your fathers, he asked two questions in this verse. Where are they? And the prophets, do they continue to live forever? I believe what, Jesus, what, what Zechariah is communicating through the Lord is that time is brief. You don't live forever. And God would send prophets and would send prophets to give the word, but they even died off. What lives forever? What continues from generation to generation that God preserves and it never fails? His word, right? The, the prophets may change. The instruments may change. But the word is always the same. And he reminding, your fathers came and left. They were cast out of the land. They received the judgment. Prophets came. They don't live forever. But God's word, that's what verse 6 is. But my words, my statutes, which I have commanded the servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, by our heart and by our hands, so hath he dealt with us. So, as we end these first six verses here, just an understanding here, um, this is laid out the introduction for the whole book. And it cries out from these first few words to Israel, Repent. There is mercy, but you've got to meet God on what he expects. And, and before, you can, before you can enjoy any of the promises and the prophecies and understand the visions and receive the blessings and the coming Messiah and the kingdom that is to come, before you ever are able to receive that, there is a prerequisite. And that prerequisite is the fact that you must repent. And, and that's going to be the condition by which God is going to set on his people. Leaving the Old Testament, going into the New Testament when the Messiah does come on the scene. Now what we're going to see here from verse 7 down to verse 17. And you're going to have to follow me, we've got 20 minutes. We find the first of eight visions. 
This is the vision of the four horsemen. And what I'm going to say is, if you can understand this first vision, then, then you're going to be okay on the next seven visions. Because pretty much all eight visions are saying the same thing. They're going to, re, they're going to, they're going to add a few details to the storyline but the visions are going to help you to understand the message of comfort to God's people when they return, when they repent. This is what God is going to do. These are the, this is the promise. Here's the condition. Here is the promise. This is what's going to happen. And God's going to lay this word out through um, Zechariah seeing visions. So here's an introduction to verse 7. Upon the fourth and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the, the prophet, saying. Now that's the only introduction we're going to receive until we get to chapter 7 and verse 1. So that means that this this. These eight visions are all going to be seen on one night in a sequence, one right after the other, all right? On this day, this specific day, all eight of them are going to come to him. So we will not get another introduction uh, uh, to a next section until chapter 7. And he pins point. This is... This is um, he says in this verse, this is the, uh, the 20... Um, uh, the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year. All right? he, he knows exactly what date this is going to be. He remembers. Now, the reason he says this is because he's going to show us that what is going to happen on this specific day, this specific month, this specific year, while Darius was on the throne, this vision or these visions can be pinpointed to a date and time. So he could look back and say... It happened on this day. He can tell you the day and the time that it came to him. He's not pulling, he's not saying, well, sometime back when I was about 20-something, you know, I saw these weird visions. No, he was specific. This day, and, gonna, and then he's going to be detailed of what he sees. He says here in this verse that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah. This is not something that he's going to pull out of his head. As strange as what he's about to see, Zechariah wants us to know he's not crazy, he's not high on something. Okay? This reminds me, if it wasn't for this word coming to Zechariah, he would have never written it down. Because he would have thought everybody would think that I've lost my you know, marbles. Because what you're going to read is really wacko. All right. When it comes down to just the normal, it's like, why is he telling us this? Because this is the word of the Lord, and he wants us to understand. I'm not just pulling this out of my head. This reminds me of what 2 Peter 2, 1 and verse 21 says. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter is looking back at someone like Zechariah, and he's saying, these men didn't make it up. 
They weren't sitting there saying, we've got to come up with some really cool stories for our history in Israel and some really cool prophecies and make up some things. So we just, how about this? And why don't I say about four horsemen and this one's red and this one's going to be white and he's going to ride in and there's going to be some bushes in the center. And then, you know, he's going to come in and they're going to go to and fro and then there's going to be this and he's going to describe it and say, no, this came from God. And, and so this is going to be authoritative and he wants us to understand that. Verse 8, I saw by night, behold, a man riding upon a red horse. I saw by night, this is God's word, came to Zechariah through a vision, very similar to what would happen with John in the book of Revelation. This is not a dream. Sometimes God spoke through dreams. Dreams are different than visions. Dreams happen while someone's asleep. A vision happens while someone is awake and conscious, all right? They're, they're alert, all right? This is not something, this is different. This, the word in the Hebrew is not dream, but he saw. It's going to be a word that is connected with vision. So this is not what Jacob had when he was laying in Bethel and he was asleep and saw the, the, the dream. This is more like what would happen to, um, to Ezekiel as well as John and several others in the Old Testament, that God would give him the word through a vision when he was awake. It happens to be at night, so maybe he had had insomnia, okay? But he's not asleep, and he tells us this. I saw this. And it's interesting, when you think about how God communicates, God oftentimes did communicate through visions, his word, because we didn't have the full, in this time, there didn't have the full canon of scripture. God does not speak through dreams or visions in a revelatory way anymore. That stopped with the close of the book of Revelation. Through the apostles and the prophets. But God chose to use his word, inspire that through a form of a vision where he would see. So this is God. And what is he going to see? Let's just read through it here. And I'll just give some, some, some comments here to help us understand. Behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. Or that were in the bottoms. You could see kind of like a, a valley. That was down in the, in the valley. And, and behind him were their red horses. Speckled. That would be a mixed. And white. All right, so he sees a rider on a red horse, and he's down in the valley. He's around some myrtle bushes. Myrtle bushes in Israel grew about nine, eight, as tall as eight or nine feet. Okay, so they're more bushes than they are what we would see as trees. All right, and, and, um, and he's standing there. Is he standing next to his horse, or is the horse stationary and he's sitting on it? Doesn't give us a description. Both of them could be. He's standing there in a, in a station. And then behind him are, are a red, speckled, and white horses. Okay, so we've, we've got these other horses that are, uh, that are back behind him. And then he says here in verse 9, Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these things be. So, um, Zacharias now having a conversation and we're introduced to an angel that is standing next to him, that is, that is communicating with him. All right? So we have now, in this scene, we have a rider who's on a horse, 
Behind him are other horses. We assume from the context that those horses also have riders. It's not stated directly, but it is stated indirectly in verse 11 when there is a recognition. There's the plural use of the pronoun for the riders who are speaking uh, on the horses or the horses that are speaking. They answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the trees. Okay, so they're going to speak. So we know there are riders on these other horses, or at least we know indirectly that there are riders on the other horses as well. And you say, well, why then does he tell us that there's only one rider on the red horse, but he doesn't mention the riders on the other horses? Well, here's what commentators have indicated, because the emphasis is on the one rider. Because this rider on the red horse is going to be very important to the story. And so that's oftentimes the way that a vision would come through, showing emphasis by not giving details of some of the other things. Don't get carried away by the colors, please. Um, if you want to know a little more information, there, you know, there's... In fact, I read four pages in one commentary about what this color been, what's the speckle, and is it brown, and is it this, and is it that? And then at the bottom of the information, uh, the guy, after four pages of reading, he said, it's not important. <laughs> okay. All right, good. I shouldn't have read those four pages. <laughs> However, can, can I just mention something? If you want to do some further st- study, why is the horse and the rider red? And the emphasis of red mentioned again, that could be a connection to Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Isaiah 63, if you want to write it off to the side, read it later on. There is a description of the color red in another vision by Isaiah could potentially answer that uh, for us, for you. Look at verse 9, or I said verse 9 already. And the angel talked with me. Uh, and uh, uh, said unto me, I will show thee what these be. So now we have an angel that's talking to him. So we're introduced just to a simple, old, normal angel who's going to be, for the rest, he comes up, I think he, he appears 11 times talking with Zechariah. He will appear throughout the next six chapters. What commentaries call him the interpretive angel. I like to say he's the narrator. Okay, he's standing next to Zechariah as he's seeing this vision. And he's going to help Zechariah interpret what he sees. He's kind of coming along and saying, okay. Do you remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim came to the interpreter's house and the interpreter went along the objects that he saw and helped him to interpret? Picture this angel who's going to go with him. He's just a normal angel. He's not given a name. He just said he's a normal old angel who's there to, to help Zechariah understand what he is seeing here. He's kind of guiding him along. And um, interesting, it says in verse 10, And the man that stood among the myrtle trees, the one who was on the red horse, answered and said... So he asked the question to the angel. The angel, before the angel answers, the rider on the red horse, the man who is sitting on the red horse among the myrtle trees, answers Zechariah. Now Zechariah is pulled into the vision. Now he's going to have a conversation with what he's seeing. All right? He just asked the angel, said, well, what, is, what are these things? Oh. And before he answers him, the man on the red horse answers Zechariah. And he says here, um, he says, these are they 
whom the Lord Yahweh hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. All right? So what is happening here is what he's saying. This, this angel tells him, he replies to Zechariah, these are the ones that Yahweh has sent to walk around the earth. The word walk and the word sent, the word walk to and fro and sent, in the Hebrew here are military terms. These would be seen as scouts. These three horsemen that are on behind the rider are going to be sent out and they have been sent out to ride around the whole world and, and they have been sent to go to and fro. All right, this is like a patrol that they are being sent on. Kings in the ancient times had horsemen who would move around the battlefield and go around the country and do reconnaissance and come back and report to the general, report to the king, report to the commander-in-chief and tell them what they have seen. Okay, this is a typical scene in the ancient world. Riders were used in that fashion. Now, get this, Zechariah is seeing the armies of God moving around the earth like scouts. Can I give you a little application and a lesson here? God has an army who moves around the earth that we cannot see. Satan is said in the book of Job, when he comes to God's throne, God asks him, what you been doing? All right, that's my own translation. And Satan says, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth, walking around. So we know the devil likes to do that. And he's been doing it. He's got his demons and his minions that go out and do that as well. But here we've got an introduction here to a little bit of what God is doing with these, these angelic beings that are being sent out. God has a spiritual army that is going to and fro. Angels exist just like demons exist. Angels do not have the freedom to go anywhere they please. They only go on missions that God sends them. They are sent oftentimes to deliver messages in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament, such as Peter, who saw uh, an angel who, who grabbed him and pulled him out of the prison. But we also know from scriptures such as Daniel that they carry prayers and they fight spiritual battles that we cannot see. Even in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says that we may even have entertained angels and didn't even know it. They may have come to your house. Very similar to what happened with Abraham when he was there in his tent. And the angels came and sat with him and he entertained them in his own tent and didn't even know it. So, the question is, some people had, at least I had, are there guardian angels? Do you have a guardian angel? Well, have you seen yourself drive lately? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe there should be. I don't know. I don't. I seem to think my opinion is maybe there are. Right? We can't be dogmatic about that. However, I do believe that we are fighting a spiritual battle, and that we never know. We will never know until we get to heaven how angels protected us in this spiritual warfare that we are fighting. Daniel didn't know that his prayers were being hindered. We read and studied in um, earlier this year in the book of Jude. 
And you go from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Jude before we even realized there was a spiritual battle and God had to send Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. So we don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm other than the fact that we are fighting a spiritual battle. And that, don't forget, just like Elijah who prayed and asked the Lord to open the eyes of his servant to look around and see the host of heaven. Just like Satan moves around this earth, God also has an army that moves around this earth. We may not know how they work and what happens and what goes on, but, but God has riders. God has angelic beings, both Old and New Testament. And I believe in, in the day that we live as well. We've got to be real careful in digging in and, and getting too far. You know, Frank Peretti and some of that, this good, good fictional reading. And, and you know, we just, we just got to be real careful. Come to God's Word and let God's Word be our guide, not some novel book. However, it is, the Bible does say, we are fighting a spiritual battle. And so what we're seeing here is we are seeing a, in Zechariah, seeing a vision of these angelic beings who are communicating with Zechariah, then a rider on the, on the red horse, then these other riders who are being sent out over the world, and then notice what happens, and then we have, this is just enough time that we'll have. They answered, the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees. Now, that is a very important identification here. We have just been given a title of the rider on the red horse. His name is the angel of the Lord. So when you go back to verse 8, I saw by night and behold a man on a red horse standing amongst the myrtle trees in this position of general and commander-in-chief. And now he speaks, and Zechariah says, he is the angel of the Lord. Now we are in Zechariah, second to the last book in the Old Testament. All readers of the Old Testament would recognize this title of the angel of the Lord is not just a passing title. This is very important. It only appears on a few occasions throughout the Old Testament. And I'll just basically tell you the identification is. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. All right? This is God, if we would say it, in flesh. Before he was born in Bethlehem. Here's some passages of scripture. Genesis chapter 16. Five times in the story of Hagar. When she's in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord said. And the angel of the Lord said unto her. And the angel of the Lord said unto her. That's the first time he appears. The angel of the Lord. Five times I believe in that narrative. And then she cries out. You can look at it yourself. Uh, Genesis chapter 16. She cries out. O Lord God. You are Jehovah who sees. He's talking to the angel of the Lord. Okay, That's not no normal angel. Pardon the English. All right. It appears again in, um, in Exodus 3 when Moses is on, um, on his journey of watching sheep. He comes and he sees a bush that is burning with fire. And, and Exodus 3 says, And the angel of the Lord was standing in the midst of the burning bush. 
And in the next verse, it says, And the Lord God spoke to Moses out of the midst of the burning bush. The angel of the Lord and the Lord God are one and the same. He comes up again in the book of Joshua when he appears to Joshua before he crosses the Jordan River. Um, he appears again in a few other locations, the angel of the Lord. And just to close with the angel of the Lord, all Jewish writers, all Jewish readers at this time would have understood who the angel of the Lord was. This was God's incarnate form, in angelic form. This was God. And it was so important to, him, to them that David wrote about the angel of the Lord in Psalm 34 in verse 7. You can write that in your margin if you want to. David took comfort because he knew that it is the angel of the Lord that encamps around about them that fear him. So the angel of the Lord was the, the very personal presence of God to protect his people. So now we're given a description of who this angel of the Lord is for Zechariah. Standing on this horse, sending out these reconnaissance, these scouts around the world. And they're going to come back and they're going to, they're going to give him some information. But I think this is, just, this is enough to be able to just encourage us here to understand. The message of comfort that is going to come right out of here is that the angel of the Lord has disappeared for several hundred years. They've been in captivity for seven, 70 years. In fact, it's not said where he is, but I, it just in my history of, of Israel, I know he was the fourth man in the burning, fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know he doesn't say that it was the angel of the Lord. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar says, one like unto the Son of God, or the sons of God. There he was. But now we see him on a red horse. And Israel in their remnant in a small group, puny, with Darius on the throne, still under Gentile powers, building one brick upon the next of this temple. And the discouragement among these people, read about it in the book of Haggai, as they look and they said, oh, this little bitty temple compared to Solomon's temple. How, you know, what is this, this is, are we, are, does anything that we do even matter? Does God even see? And now in the very first vision, Zechariah is going to say, there is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Messiah, who is here protecting us. He is in our midst. He is right here. He knows what's going on. He's sending out messengers around the world. Don't you ever forget that God has not forgotten. And by the way, if you've been with us, or at least know, the, the, in the Hebrew, the name Zechariah means Jehovah has not forgotten. Father, I pray as we close tonight. Thank you that you are a God who sees. And you are a God who is very present with us. We may not be able to see you. We may not be able to see the angelic beings that are probably protecting us or taking our prayers up to your throne. We don't know the spiritual battle that is happening. We know it exists. We just don't know how it's going. <laughs> we feel sometimes in this wicked world that we're losing. Sometimes like Zechariah and the people of Israel in the midst of a construction project, when you got opposition on every side and your fathers have rebelled and turned away and you're just trying to plug away and do the next right thing, it feels like you've forgotten and you don't care and we're all alone. 
And when Zechariah sees this vision, and he sees this rider who is the angel of the Lord standing there in full control, caring and overseeing and communicating with Zechariah, I'm sure his heart leaped for joy as he knew, here's the Messiah. And he's right here and he cares. And if he cares and he sees and he's sending out scouts, then I have nothing to worry about because God's word will be fulfilled. Thank you for those comforting words. And uh, Lord, even though we didn't get to finish the vision this evening, I pray it would be an encouragement to, to the students of God's word to keep reading and keep studying and find comfort in these words. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for being here. We look forward to seeing you in the morning. God bless you. You are dismissed.